Yeah, I definitely appreciate you, Grayson, um, and the church giving me opportunity to be here. Um, like I said, my name's Mark Smith. Um, definitely add us to your prayer list. Um, it's much, much needed um, for Chesney, um, for what he's going to do and everything like that. Um, excited, like I said, I understand you ought to be in the book of Matthew, um, so we're not going to derail anything. We're going to jump right back into Matthew 3. Um, I'm sure Grayson and everyone who's taught um, has given an excellent foundation um, so for redundancy's sake, we won't go back into a lot of it. But I'll tell you, I personally enjoy this gospel um, because I'm a details person. Um, and so Matthew and Luke um, go to painstakingly ends um, to give us a lot of details about the life of Jesus and everything like that. Um, to understand, particularly for Matthew's sake, that Jesus is the sovereign king. That's really Matthew's big um, push. And so that this is the good news that scripture has been pointing to. He writes from a, a really rich Jewish background to highlight everything from the Old Testament, from Adam to Abraham to David, as we saw um, probably from chapter one, um, and having eventually all those guys fail. And so what's everything been pointing to? And Matthew wants us to understand that that Jesus will be the one to bring everything. These kingdoms that have risen and fallen, that Jesus will be the one to inaugurate the kingdom, to bring it in. Um, and so he's going to speak predominantly to a very Jewish audience, and we need to understand all of that context in its writing. And so that's his goal, that for anyone listening or reading with a Jewish background to see that Jesus really was who he claimed to be that he is this long-awaited, long-expected Messiah. And I think it's comical even how Matthew uses that in defense of Jesus. After all, he's been having all these conversations, gleaning us into all these conversations with religious leaders and things like that. And he says, all these guys have been pointing to Jesus. If you remember in the previous passage, John rebukes these leaders for actually appealing to these guys. To appealing to be descendants of Abraham and David, and John's attitude towards them will only foreshadow the same attitude that Jesus will have with them. This pride that they've let consume them about being descendants of Abraham has really consumed every part of them, and the fruit of repentance is not in them. They do not expect the proper Messiah as it's been foretold, and they display no evidence of drawing near to God, especially near to the one whom he sent which we'll see further today. Um, and so before we go any further, let me read it, and then we'll dive in. Matthew 3, we'll start in verse 13. So Jesus has come to Galilee. He's found John. You'll remember he's preaching, but he's not just preaching in town. He's decided to go out into the wilderness. And so he says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is a way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word yet again. Um, what a privilege, what a blessing it is. Move me aside, speak through me and to each and every one of us, and we'll be eager to listen and to ultimately give you the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, when we come to a passage like this, um, and having just read John telling us of the one who's more powerful, you'll remember he says he's not even unworthy to untie his sandals. And so we get into this, we should immediately, hopefully, dispel any, any notion that Jesus needed a baptism of repentance. I do want to dispel that throughout the message, but I want to put it up front that to dispel any notion that John's baptism of Jesus applied to him. If he is who he says he is. If Matthew wants to communicate to us that entering into the kingdom of heaven requires that we repent of our sin, that we trust in this one, the Son, for forgiveness, then by default that Son should be sinless, shouldn't need repentance. And so why on earth do we have this scenario where Jesus comes to be baptized? Well, I'm glad you asked because John asked the same thing. Um, We're going to answer that today. Um, And so that's really where the crux of our passage come to the forefront, and there's going to be several things that we look at. Anybody hate commercials as much as I do? You hate ads as much as I do? I mean, I, I left and went to streaming to get away from them, and here they are coming back unless I'm going to give up that week's groceries to not have them. But I thought, started thinking about this week in regards to at least a part of this passage, because the thing that I hate most about commercials is if I'm going to buy something, I want it to be because I want it, not just because LeBron James has it and I need it. Or, or ladies, you don't need the coach bag because J-Lo is in the commercial, right? But that's really the purpose of those is to get us to buy into whatever product is being endorsed by whoever, whether we need it or not. Well, we find John here in the passage trying to stop Jesus in this moment. And then finally he allows it But the first order of business, Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness is in order for me to endorse your ministry, John. And that's really what we see going on here. Matthew's goal again is for us to realize that Jesus is who he says he is and that the message that John is proclaiming, this message of repent, to turn away from your sins and prepare your hearts to accept this new way of living. And that's right where he is here. He shows us John preaching, um, but not only that, he's proclaiming the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the coming king, in order for people to prepare. He says, the king's here. I'm preparing you for this. And so what does Jesus do? He steps on the scene. He validates John's message. He says, I'm here. I'm the bringer of this forgiveness that John's been preaching about, this man that John's been telling you about. I'm him. I'm the one. And so hopefully without, like I said, being repetitive of anything last week, maybe just to recap, the arrival of the kingdom that John is proclaiming is made crystal clear no less than that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ. No less than, that's its ultimate message. We know from John, other John, the son of Zebedee, there's a lot of Johns that we'll look at, but John, the gospel author, We know from his account of Jesus' baptism in John 1 that John the Baptist recognized who Jesus was. He recognized him as the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. He acknowledges that. He professes him as both the Lamb, as we just sang about. He professes him as both Lord. And those aspects of Jesus make evident John's message. 
that the day of the Lord prophesied throughout the Old Testament would bring both blessing and judgment. And John's proclaiming this truth, repent because currently you're under God's wrath if we're being real this morning. But there's a way out. The good news of the kingdom is terrible news to those who refuse to repent. But the kingdom's at hand, John says, and the day of the Lord is here. It's something to be excited and rejoicing over. And that's why we see John's message so urgent and why Jesus endorses it. I do want to camp for a moment on baptism. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But just to kind of recap and unpack this passage properly, baptism is another identifying marker of a Christian. It's an outward symbol. It distinguishes us from some similar beliefs and convictions within different denominations. But up until this point, at least for John's perspective, it wasn't overly common in the Old Testament. And the only people who were really baptized were Gentiles or outsiders coming into the Jewish faith, accepting or converting over to Judaism. And Jews sometimes would cleanse before rituals, but I wouldn't necessarily um, label that specifically baptism. And so baptizing was a way for non-Jews to symbolically say, I'm, um, I'm leaving, I'm renouncing my former heritage, my former way of living. And yet here, we find John baptizing Jews. And so there's a lot going on here. We find Jews being baptized, and so we can't miss this, I don't think. His message is that their Jewishness, their heritage, did not guarantee them right standing before Yahweh, before God. That they personally needed to confess their sin. They personally needed to profess faith in God. And particularly, John says, profess faith in the one specifically he's sending. This Messiah, the time has come. Now, I think there's still a difference between what John is doing and what Jesus will later bring in and give to his followers because Pentecost hasn't taken place. The Spirit hasn't come yet to indwell specifically believers. But I think in a very real sense, John is beginning to shift the mindset of what baptism would portray. And so to be baptized is to renounce dependence upon self. Um, it's to acknowledge that there's nothing inherent within you that can save you on your own. And so in this instance, this actually includes renouncing heritage. Anything that we can claim to for status or anything. And so this certainly explains John's stern attitude towards the religious leaders who have put everything on this, who've boasted about being children of Abraham. But the New Testament picture of baptism, I believe, opposes the idea that we're born into God's family, that we're born in, that um, Jew, non-Jew alike, we must be brought into a loving, uh, brought in by a loving father and adopted in, grafted in, the scripture says, by his grace, when and only when that grace opens our eyes to see that we're hopeless without him. If you don't believe me, I'll introduce you to a guy named Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and he spends a lot of time on specifically that. I'll give you one of them, Galatians 3. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so baptism becomes this outward symbol to indicate that regardless of what family you're born into, status, position, 
location. Repentance is needed. Confession is needed. And ultimately, faith has to be placed in the only one who can do anything about it. It's renouncing any personal righteousness that you or I thought we had, renouncing any worldly success that we placed our hope in and that we're going to place our full reliance upon the grace of God. But there's nothing you can do to save yourself from the position that you're in due to our sin. But John's telling us the good news is that the Savior is coming. In fact, he's here. He's in the pages that we read, which brings us back to our question. If Jesus is who he says he is, why is he the one being baptized here? And so verse, as I said, it's certainly to endorse John's ministry. It's to validate that. Second is to do exactly another aspect of ads and commercials. It's to identify with us. Specifically, it was for Jesus to identify with sinners. We know from places like Hebrews 4 that Jesus is without sin, but he did it in order to to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isaiah 53 would predict that the Messiah would be counted among the rebels and how fitting that is where Jesus dies between two of them. And so there was no clear depiction of that. And so in part, Jesus, for him to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus needed to identify with those whom he came to save. Paul says it, I think, best in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Write this down because this is the gospel in a verse. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life, a life that we couldn't. He was ridiculed. He was crucified as if he had sinned. But it was only to take the place that we should have been in ourselves. And so baptism is a symbolic way of us relating to Jesus in that way. Which leads to the third aspect. Thirdly, Jesus sets an example by his baptism. I keep referring to this, Jesus saying he was going to fulfill all righteousness. And so perhaps you've caught on. There's actually not an Old Testament passage that says the Messiah needed or would be baptized. And so we've got to kind of peel back the layers as to what Jesus is saying. And so in order for him to fulfill all, he had to be totally obedient in every way. And so by way of example, Jesus models what it means to be obedient, what it means for his followers to one day walk after him. Obedience that he'll actually one day command, if you're familiar with. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and baptize. And so what makes it all the more special here is what baptism portrays, what it would foreshadow from this point of view. It's literally the picture of salvation, the picture of death and resurrection. And so without getting into the debate on full immersion baptism or anything this morning or sprinkling, I think there's something to be said here of if the passage doesn't at least hint to immersion because the going under of the water symbolizes us dying to sin and then rising, it symbolizes pointing to new life in Christ. And so it relates us in a lot of ways to Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, that's what you'll often hear. You're buried with Christ in death. You're raised to walk in newness of life. And so just to recap, baptism is for Jesus to identify with those whom he came to save. And it's an example for us for obedience, a symbolic act for Jesus to show, this is what I'm going to do for you. 
And this is how you can relate to that so that others can see the change that's taken place. So that's all that baptism entails. There's a lot going on even in so few verses. I think that's certainly an understatement considering what we're about to see in the final two verses. We have Jesus doing all this just by partaking in this one seemingly insignificant act. But then I love this because it's one of the few instances where we get, where we get something recorded in all four Gospels almost the exact same way. As I said, I'm sure you're aware, every Gospel has their own theological intention for writing, has their own thesis, but each and every one gives us this account almost identical. But Jesus' baptism in all four, we get this magnificent display of the Trinity. We see few places where we get the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all specifically working in tandem at every moment. They're certainly never separated, but here we get it very specifically, and so I think we have to highlight it. We actually get all three members of the Godhead directly involved. And so if Jesus was there to endorse John's ministry, Jesus is about to be endorsed to the highest degree. I mean, this would put the billion dollars Nike paid uh, Michael Jordan to shame. Jesus is endorsed by both the Father and the Spirit. Now, let me clear something up because you'll be asked this probably inevitably one day because some believe that this is the moment that Jesus became divine, that he wasn't prior to his baptism, even to the point where some would believe that he was only human prior to this point. But I think if we look at this, the only thing we need to read in order to debunk that flawed theory, I believe, is again in John's account of this. We read John the Baptist saying, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. From an earthly perspective, John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. And so how can he say he existed before me? Well, it can only be because Jesus was co-eternal and pre-existent with the Father and the Spirit from the get-go. Jesus would tell the Pharisees in John 8 that before Abraham, I am. It's this big mic drop moment where Jesus equates himself to the God of the universe, the one who literally spoke it into creation. And so John the Baptist here is testifying to that fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is God in the flesh, God's Son, and most importantly, the Son is taking center stage here. He's about to embark on his earthly ministry. He's humbled himself in the form of humanity, taken on flesh so that in him we might receive salvation through his example of obedience. The next thing we see is the Spirit anointing Jesus. It says, when John was baptized, or Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens opened for him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Again, I think to avoid any misinterpretation, this is not the Spirit coming on Jesus as if it's for the first time. Hopefully you'll remember, um, Grayson can get on to you if not, but Matthew 1, it says, Jesus was of the Spirit. Mary was of the Spirit with Jesus. And so the picture that we're getting here in Matthew 3 is really a fulfillment of yet again another prophecy. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of, uh, of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And so while the Spirit was present with Jesus prior to Matthew 3, 
Jesus was set apart in a very unique way here for his public ministry and for the baptism that he would be bringing in. And so the Spirit's appearance here is endorsing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He is the good news. He is the one sent to heal the brokenhearted, to set free the captive, to bring liberty. And so we certainly see the Son's obedience. We see the Spirit anointing. And then verse 17, the Father speaks. The voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there are several passages that I think speak to this. Um, and so, again, just for you details, people like me. One of the places, Psalm 2, 8, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Another one's Isaiah 42, 1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I put my spirit in him. He will bring justice to the nations. And so the Father in this moment chooses to speak from heaven, and it's a very deliberate saying to verify Jesus. And so what he says makes it all the more evident that he is the promised one, that he is this long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son. And so this glorious display that God had come to dwell among flesh in order that we might be saved, and the Father comes and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so I know that's a lot of information, some of which are details, but some are very pillars of the faith that hopefully you possess and profess. But if you're like me, a lot of those things might pique curiosity, might send you down some rabbit trails tonight when you can't go to sleep. Um, it might send you searching for just more information. But if we aren't careful, we'll walk away from a passage like this where we read about even something neat that's happening um, well, John the Baptist's ministry is, you know, legit. That was cool that Jesus did that and all of this happened. But we want to apply a passage like this to ourselves. Because in a lot of ways, I think the church's ministry throughout history, but especially today, is much like John's ministry. First and foremost, John's message was Jesus's. Later on in chapter 4, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Jesus says, repent and be baptized. This is the message. This is the same one that we're commissioned as Christ followers to take part in, to go and do likewise. And if we profess to be Christ followers and are not, we're living in disobedience. It's not a suggestion. And I, that message is so needed in our world with so many depending upon themselves, uh, on status or on wealth, all these things will leave them and have probably left you unsatisfied, longing, wondering. And so we come alongside those, just like we do here in our small groups and through discipleship, we come alongside people like that and tell them about the one who truly can make a difference, who does have the answers. We lead them in turning and what it means to turn from sin, to hold fast to Jesus, to trust in him. And I love this verse about the Father being pleased in the Son because as we turn from our sin and trust in the Son, the Father now looks on us and is pleased in the Son. Pleased in His accomplishments, in His obedience. And so there's no need to keep trying different things. We can be right before God, not by trusting in ourselves, but by trusting in the one He sent, in Jesus, and resting in His righteousness. And here's the thing, 
when we're resting upon him, that frees us up to live on mission. When all our cares, all our worries, all our weaknesses are satisfied in him, we're more apt to share him. And so what should you think about at lunch today as you leave here tonight, tomorrow, as Monday comes, as we leave from here? First, Christian, if you haven't been baptized, that's the next step. I think that Scripture is pretty clear here that if Christ did it, that's enough right there. But if Christ did it and then commands his followers to be as well, then it's disobedient not to. If you have experienced Jesus, why would you not want to? It's, it's the first and easiest way. It's hard to talk to somebody at the coffee shop. It's easy to get up here and profess your faith. Most of the time, the pastor does all the talking. And, and so you can do that. But secondly, for followers who have taken that step, the next is to continue telling others about it. You made a profession, you keep on professing. It doesn't stop when you come out of the water. Again, this, this first and easiest outward display. And so as you look more and more like Jesus and trust him more every day, let that be what flows out of you. That you're so full of Jesus that it spills out onto other people as you go about your day. We do as John did in a way. Jesus is coming. Messiah is coming. But we have the privilege to say he has come. He has come. The king, the savior, he has come. He's brought salvation. And not only that, he's coming back for those who have placed trust in him, who have repented, who have, are not depending upon themselves. And it would be the most unloving thing for you not to tell people about the hope you possess. That trusting in themselves is futile and will leave them under wrath. Especially when you've been shown grace like no other. And so Christ came, he rescued a people for himself, his church. And so as the church, we continue everything that started here. We continue John's ministry, that the king, the savior has come, that he came, he rescued a people, and that this church, as we build and we spread his kingdom, we do so until he returns. But I venture to guess in, in any room there's always someone else. Someone who maybe none of that's true. And perhaps today's the day where you say, I, I've been there. I've been unsatisfied in a lot of areas. I've been the one spinning my wheels, not getting any traction in, in whatever it is. And friend, I'm here to tell you that the answer is Jesus. And you're in a room of people who have been there and have seen what he can do, the way he transforms lives. And Christ follower, you're commissioned to say what I'm about to. Friend, stop spinning your wheels trying to chase the things that will never satisfy you. That if you're honest with yourself, you've depended on you your entire life. And you wonder why you aren't happy with where you are. And it's because you will never satisfy you. The things of this world will never complete your happiness. But there is someone who came, who lived like everyone else, but did so in such a way that 
by placing your faith in him, you actually can be satisfied. You can find joy amidst life's heartaches. Jesus is the one. And so whether you've been walking with Jesus for years now, maybe you just have, or maybe today's the day, the message is repent and be baptized. Maybe it's for you, or maybe it's for you to take to someone else. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this day. Lord, I just want to be grateful that we have the opportunity to hear from you in ways like we never can. Maybe someone today heard for the first time, and I certainly lift them up in this moment, God, that you would just do a tremendous work, give them tremendous peace like they've never had before. But God, I pray that you would embolden each and every one of us to be courageous, to not just sit within these four walls and profess you, but get to go out on a daily basis and trust you with the grace and the hope that you've given us that someone else has given. And so, Father, we just rest in that. We rest in the righteousness that we can never earn that Jesus did on our behalf. And we praise you. We give you the glory that you do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you were encouraged by the message. At ID Clifton, we exist to love God, love others, and make disciples. To learn more about ID Clifton, including our gathering times, small groups, and events, please visit us at idclifton.com. We'll see you next time.